So Romans 14 has been, I, been the text for me the last two years that has grounded me more than any text in the Bible. I feel like I've been living and breathing Romans 14. And personally, my personal testimony is that it has provided me great peace, mental clarity, and the ability to get along with a whole array of Christians who are on the spectrum in terms of their conscience in relation to COVID-19 more than any other text in Scripture. It's just been, it's just been wonderful. And I have found for myself personally that it's been exceedingly helpful in, in, in this whole pandemic situation. And it's also been surprising to me how very few pastors and leaders are actually appealing to this passage and this text of Scripture to help us navigate all these differences. So this is not a, a message on COVID-19. This is now we're going to broaden it out so that we can really drive these principles home so that in any situation that you might be in with a fellow believer where you are Christians, you have hearty faith in the gospel together, yet you have disagreement on non-essentials, you can still get along with one another in a way that glorifies God and preserves your relationship and your friendship. And so I just would encourage you to make Romans 14 a mainstay in your Christian life. It is a, an exceedingly practical passage of Scripture that will be in about every single situation you find yourself. Okay? Okay. So let's talk, let's talk briefly by way of introduction. So Paul was quite aware that Christians may not get along. You guys ever had a squabble with a Christian before? Did you ever, you ever thought, like, I shouldn't have a squabble with a Christian because we're both believers in the Lord Jesus and we love the Lord and we've been forgiven of our sins and we're brothers and sisters in, in Christ and we should never have a fight with another Christian or a disagreement or a squabble, Okay. Well, you sh let's kind of disabuse ourselves of such notions because they're just not true, nor are they helpful, okay? Just like you grow up with siblings, right, in the home, and you have some squabbles with your siblings, even though you're in the same family. Similarly, with Christians, we're in the same family. We're going to have squabbles. We're going to have disagreements. You saw them in the church, even in Paul's day. He had to deal with squabbles. He had to deal with factions and clicks and so on. First Corinthians chapter one. Paul's addressing these issues with the church. He says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the name. Or I, should, I, should, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment." Now, why would he say that? Well, and in the case of the church of Corinth, it's because there were actual factions and disagreements among the people. So strong that some were saying, I'm, I follow Apollo. He's, he's, he's the uh, best teacher. I, no, 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 I follow Paul. He's the best teacher. No, 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 no. We follow Peter. And you'd have these internal disagreements and fighting about who is the best preacher and teacher. I like John Piper. I like John MacArthur. Elish DeBake's my favorite. No, John MacArthur got it wrong last week. No, Elish And blah, blah, blah. Similar kind of thing. And you start to divide up into these factions. Paul saw that sort of thing. And so he exhorts the church to get along. Get along. Don't let these squabbles, these differences of opinion, divide you. For it has been, verse 11, it has reported to me, 
by Chloe's people that there is a quarrel, there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, which is Peter, I follow, or I follow Christ. It was the I follow Christ crowd who, they're like, no, man, we, y'all got it wrong. We follow Christ, right? You could just hear those, hear those people kind of looking down their nose at all, all self-righteously looking down all you guys who are squabbling about whether or not you like John MacArthur or John Piper saying, no, 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 we follow Christ, right? And, and actually they're self-righteous and they're dividing themselves from you, all you immature people who can't figure out which human teacher you like. So they're just as bad as everybody else. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about the, the foolishness of the, of the cross and their calling to salvation. But his point here at the beginning is that the church needs to get along. And in fact, it's what uh, Jesus prayed for, isn't it? In John 17, uh, 22. Before we get there, I actually want to give you a couple more uh, examples here. Philippians 1 Uh, Paul, here, he's encouraging or exhorting the Philippians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says that in verse 27, striving side by side with the faith of the gospel, not frightened by anything. And then he says, so if there's, in verse 1 of chapter 2, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and those ifs are because there, there's to be understood, because there is, not like I hope there is, but because there is, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Okay, he, he wants the church to be united. He knows, he's going to get to Romans 14, and he knows that this does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. You know where you find uniformity? In a cult. That's where you find uniformity, right? Everything you do, even the way you part your hair, that must be followed, right? That's, that's a cult. Christian church, unity. You'll have disagreements. You'll have different styles of clothing. You'll have disagreements about who is the best three-point shooter. No, no, that's absolutely sure. We know who that is. That's Steph Curry. Okay, who the best NBA basketball team is, uh, who you like the most in the NFL, or the NHL, or if whether hockey is even worth watching, right? Uh, things like that. I like it live, personally. It's an amazing sport live. On TV, I have a hard time. I just, I gotta be honest with you guys. Just bear my heart with you. But in, in the Christian church, you can have all kinds of differences of opinion on a myriad of things, and it's a glorious thing, because God's created us differently, give us different interests and different backgrounds and so on. But he wants us to get along despite all of that, or in light of all of that. And so here he's encouraging the Philippians to get along. And, and you know what? He had to because apparently in Philippi as well, there are some who weren't getting along. I, treat, uh, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This is chapter 4, verse 2. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Christians, genuine Christians who are passionate about Jesus, who are serving faithfully, who love the Lord. That's not the question. 
two women having a hard time getting along. It's just, it's just life in a fallen world, okay? The Lord wants us to be unified. This was his prayer to his father. John chapter 17, verses 22 and following. I'll start in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, his immediate disciples right there in his presence, but for those who will believe in me through their word, you, me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me read that again, because Jesus is saying that one of the ways that the world will know that Jesus is real and that he's divine and that he's come from God is that the church is united. Okay, that the church gets along. That they, may, uh, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, when you talk to people, what is one of the main reasons people might say that they just can't believe in Christ? Maybe you've heard it. I think it, it's fairly common. Yeah, yeah, the church, the people in the church, every, all the difference of denominations, people not getting along and fighting, and, right? That is a stumbling block to people, right? The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as I have, uh, even and love them even as you have loved me. Now, this is a, a unity that will be perfected in glory, right? There's coming a day, just imagine it, when you will look at me and I will look at you and it will be nothing but perfect love and affection without a hint of envy, without a hint of bitterness, without a hint of division, right? Just perfect love and affection ever growing for all eternity. Now, that's pretty sweet. This Oneness is perfected in glory, but it's to be pursued in this life, okay? And how do we do it? By grounding ourselves in a text like Romans 14 and pouring over it and saturating our minds in it. Uh, Romans 12, 16, Paul writes this. He says, um, just a simple little phrase, memorize it, write it in your journal, Write it on a note card. Think about it throughout the day. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 12. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. It's a good verse for husbands and wives too. Right, love? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Live in harmony with one another. Takes work. Takes hard work. Takes sacrifice. Takes deference. Takes humility. Takes confession of sin but it's God's desire for us. Live in harmony with one another. Isn't that a beautiful thing? See, the church is to become what humanity was always meant to become. People are looking for community. They're looking for community all over the place, aren't they? Wherever they might find it. The church is to become that one community that everyone is searching for because of things like this. Live at harmony live in harmony with one another, able to live in love and harmony and goodwill towards one another, even though we disagree on a whole myriad of things. Okay? 
How do we live in harmony with one another? It's, it's one of the most practical questions you can ask as a believer. Okay? How do you live with other believers with whom you disagree? Perhaps even strongly disagree. Is it possible? Is it possible? I would submit to you that it is. In fact, I am so grateful for the way our church has handled the whole COVID-19 pandemic that I have been persuaded all the more that this is possible through God's grace. That people, Christians, can live in harmony with one another even when the disagreements are particularly emotionally charged, they're deep disagreements, and they're on matters of, of high importance. Okay? And I've seen this church maintain its unity by God's grace. So I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded that it is possible. So let's look at your first uh, bullet point here. Issues of conscience or non-essentials. Issues of conscience, but on non-essentials or non-essentials. Issues of conscience or non-essentials. Let's start brainstorming what are things that are essential to the Christian faith that if you do not believe you're not a Christian in the biblical or historical sense of the word. What must we agree on to be Christians? Yeah. The gospel. The gospel, which is what? Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. Okay. Jesus. So we have to agree on the nature. On the nat- we have to agree on the person and work of Jesus. Would you agree? We have to agree that he is both fully God and fully man. We must agree that he has accomplished atonement fully upon the cross at, uh, on his, uh, with his work on the cross. We must agree that our salvation is by grace through faith alone, that we are justified apart from our works. Okay? So Jesus, his person and his work. What else? Yes? The authority of the Bible? I believe so. This is actually uh, disputed, unfortunately, among professing evangelicals, the authority of it. Because otherwise you have no like uh, objective truth or foundation to have your disagreements and agreements. That's right. That's right. You really are, you are, you by, by saying, we, by wiping this out, thinking that you're preserving unity, you're actually creating the situation, the environment for disunity. You have no way to now um, arbitrate your disagreements. Okay? So yes, I would believe, the, I, I believe this is historically the Bible's authority and inerrancy. Some have suggested that you don't see the early church debating over the authority of Scripture. They didn't make a big deal out of it. Why are we making a big deal out of it? You know why they didn't make a big deal out of it? Because everybody assumed it. The issues of the day were Christ. His deity, and, uh, his deity and his humanity. Those were the issues of the day for the first three or four centuries. That's why they weren't disputing over the, the authority of the Bible. It's because it was already assumed. And you can go back and you can read Irenaeus, you can read Augustine, you can read their actual 
um, uh, primary texts, and you can see that they make very clear statements about the authority and inerrancy and inspiration of the Scripture, but they're not making it a big deal because it wasn't the big deal of the day. For Augustine, it was also issues related to the freedom of the will and God's sovereignty and so, so on. But, so yes, I would believe, I would argue that those, this is essential too. What else? This kind of ties into the nature of God. That God is what? Trinity? Anything else? Sin? Sin? Sure. We believe it. We believe in sin, right? Sin is real. Sin is pervasive. It affects every component of our personhood. Not, we're not as evil as we could be, but we are completely evil and we need to be uh, set free from sin. And it's through the gospel that we're set free. Now, with these essentials in place, there are, uh, there are certain parameters in which we can even have doctrinal discussion, and we've tried to share those on Thursday nights and so on. But these are the main pieces that we have to agree on. To be a Christian means that you believe that God is a trinity. You believe in the person and work of Jesus. You believe that this is necessary because of sin. You know that He is fully God and fully man. That you, you believe that He has accomplished full atonement in His work on the cross. Full forgiveness does not need to be earned. Anything, anything else? Uh, probably need to have some kind of agreement on conversion. And I'm not talking about um, how you come to Christ. I'm talking about what happens when you come to Christ. We would have to agree that uh, we are born again. We're regenerated. We, we're changed on the inside. Okay. Regen. Can you think of anything else? Yeah, so I think, what would we have to say about that? I think you'd have to say we agree that church, um, that gathering is essential. We want to be careful here because I think there, because uh, God has told us in his word that gathering is essential. I think he's told us how to structure the leadership and the government of the church. But then he's living, given us a lot of freedom within these bounds. So we need to be careful. But yes, I would say that we have to agree that church that gathering in, in person, this was kind of the big debate, right, uh, during COVID, that this, this, is, this is essential. We can't, uh, the word church by its very nature, by, by very definition, means congregation. It means physical gathering. You can't escape it. And so this was a big part of the debate as we were wrestling back and forth, like, how do we do this? And how do we accommodate for those who are not ready to come back to church, which we are happy to do and, and are, are uh, even still doing? And, um, but nevertheless, we couldn't let go of what we believe Scripture teaches. Gathering, the, the physical gathering is essential, and that's what we need to work towards. Okay? Um, and we know that there are, still, there are still people, given their situation at home, given their situation with caring for aging parents or grandparents, that they can't gather as, as often. But nevertheless, Scripture does teach that gathering is essential for the, for the life of the church. 
okay, and that the local church is essential in God's plan for you to, to grow spiritually, okay, and to be protected and to have accountability. So there does need to be agreement here. Now how that's all done, that I think because God's given us freedom in managing that, we could go to Romans 14 and during the last two years we were able to have a situation where we accommodated to a whole host of different consciences on this issue. Okay? Anything else before we move on to the next point? Yes, Lucia, Albert. Salvation is faith in Christ alone. Yeah, faith alone, yep. So that, we could say that's conversion, faith alone. I mean, that is... We could kind of go through the, uh, the solas of the Reformation. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory of God alone. But you're right, yeah. This, this is what distinguishes us from... This is what makes us Protestant right here. Okay? If you, don't, if, you don't, if you believe it's faith plus something, then, well, faith plus the sacraments, then you'd be Roman Catholic. But really, this is, what, this is what distinguishes true Christianity from every religion in the world. Faith alone. Grace alone. So, would you put under nature of God that he always was and always will be? Yeah, so things like that. So, like, eternal, omnipotent, That's why it's so important to understand the history of the church. These are things that have been grounded and in place for centuries. I'm not standing up here and saying, okay, let's all pick and choose us 21st century Christians what we think is essential. No, this is what the church has said is essential for two millennia. That's why it's important to know church history. We should probably get back into that, shouldn't we? We were doing that on Thursday nights. We stopped at the Reformation. Uh, Albert was first page. We usually do ladies first, but Albert was right after Lucia, and then I saw you. So go ahead, Albert. Uh, let's be careful here. What do you need to believe in order to be saved? You need to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? And you, there's probably a lot of stuff here that, that you, when you first get saved, you're not going to know. Like, when you first got saved, you probably weren't able to articulate the historic definition of the Trinity. I'm pretty certain. And it's all of its um, nuance, okay? Quite confident. But you're still born again because you trusted in Christ. What we're talking about here is if, if uh, these are, this is what has historically defined the, the Christian faith, these things are essential so that if you take them away, you no longer have the Christian faith. But we're not saying that someone has to believe all of this and have all of this wrapped up before they are saved. No, you're saved by faith alone in Jesus. Sure, yeah, a catechism is trying to teach the essentials of the historic Christian faith. And that's different from gray areas, because there can be many things outside this set that the Bible clearly teaches which are not considered essential. I was just trying to understand, like, you know, like, required for salvation, essential, and, like, clearly taught. Are those different, those all different categories? Required for salvation essential to the Christian faith and clearly taught, probably clearly taught, would fall under here. Because how you're going to respond to clearly taught means you have believe something about the Bible's authority. Um, when we come to the issue of issues of conscience, we are not talking about 
things that are clearly taught. So someone might say, think of an example here. Think of an example that you might think borders on gray, but my judgment is actually clearly taught. Um, I think, think, think I'm, I'm afraid of whose toes I might step on here, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, oh, that's actually a good one. I wasn't, it's not what I was thinking, but let's, I guess we'll go there. Um, I think that it is beyond doubt. You can read my article on With All Wisdom. It is beyond dispute <laughs> that uh, baptism is for believers only and that uh, infant baptism is without theological or biblical warrant. Okay? Now, my Presbyterian brothers, who we both, we're, going, we're both going to heaven, but they disagree just as adamantly with me about that particular issue. Um, it, to me, it's not... So this is probably where we would need to start drawing concentric circles and expand this conversation on. To me, it's not... It's not to me, it's clearly taught. To me, it's... And to them, too. It's not essential to the Christian faith. We're both believers, okay? But we can't do church together. So I can't serve at a church, I can't serve at a Presbyterian church because my conscience would be violated every time they go up and baptize a child and welcome them in to the covenant, okay? Um, interesting personal side note to that. I've encouraged my parents to go to a Presbyterian church and they're Baptists. Why? Because it's the best church in Billings and it's perfect for them. They're in their 80s. They're not disputing over this issue. It's not an issue with them. It doesn't matter. But they need to be in this great fellowship, and they're having a great time, and they're growing. So in, in, in my situation, I, am not, I couldn't do that. I could not work at that church. Um, so, but there's, there's an excellent example where I think it is, is clearly taught in certain, certain situations we're not going to be able to, to work together, primarily in a, in a church setting. So in, in what you're saying, I, I, I agree with your, the way you're tiering things in the, 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 the clearly taught thing would fall under the, the authority of the Bible here, and things that are clearly taught in the Bible, those aren't the gray areas we're talking about. When we talk about gray areas or issues of conscience, we're talking about things that Scripture does not directly address. So something like the church gathering you have there, that would be under the clearly taught Yeah. Right. 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 Um, sure. Pray, maybe we should. Um, maybe instead. Well. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Maybe instead, say the church in terms of its nature. What's the nature of the church? Well, it's made up of regenerate believers. Um, that gathering is essential to its health. Jesus has commanded it, um, but I, I see what you're saying in terms of your, your test case, you know. Um, I wouldn't say you haven't been to church for two years, therefore you're not a Christian, because um, I, I can't ultimately make that judgment in that case, but to say that 
if you don't have a heart for or desire for the church, which is, which is Jesus' very body, which is, he is building, which he gave him li- his life for, um, and he has given direct commandments about the, the church and what, what, part, what role it's supposed to have in your life, then those aren't good signs for your assurance of salvation. So I, I get what you're saying. So maybe that, yeah, we need to talk about its nature more and be careful where we're placing it here on the essentials board. Uh, okay, so let's stop there. That was great. Good brainstorming. Um, so when we're talking about matters of conscience, we're not talking about disagreement on essentials. We're not talking about disagreements on what Scripture clearly teaches, although, I mean, we have to have nuance here too because, let me mention these things, because of our different educational backgrounds, family traditions, religious upbringing, past sins, and a multitude of other factors, we are going to even have different interpretations of things okay, in the Bible. But we all come to church with different convictions on what scriptures would call matters of conscience. Okay? So let's just talk briefly about what those are. An issue of conscience is something that is not essential to the Christian faith, that is not directly addressed in scripture, but that does have bearing on how believers live. And I think the first and easiest are typical, typically areas of entertainment when we think of gray areas, but there's many more. Um, d- depending on where you grew up, how you grew up, your education, your family life, religion in the home, whatever it might be, you may be wholly unable to partake in certain kinds of recreation or entertainment that someone from a different background is able to as a believer. Not because one of you is more righteous or more spiritual, one of you is partaking in something sinful and the other is not, but because you have different backgrounds that are informing your conscience. What is the conscience? Well, um, I'll save... I'm going to talk briefly about what was happening in Romans 14 in Paul's day, but we'll save that for the moment. Let's actually talk about what the conscience is, because this is really important for, for understanding this issue. Let's define the conscience. Your conscience, my conscience, is our God-given capacity to judge right and wrong. Every word of that definition is important. It's our God-given capacity to judge right and wrong. That definition is important because what it's not implying is that it is infallible. It is simply a capacity that judges right and wrong. It's not suggesting that it infallibly does that. When we act in accordance with a particular standard we deem to be right, our conscience affirms us. Okay? When we act in accordance of a particular standard that we deem as right, our conscience affirms us. You believe that it is always wrong to jaywalk, because that's what the law says, and you should never jaywalk for any circumstance, even to save that old lady from uh, crossing the street and getting hit by a bus. Rather, she better get hit by a bus, because I'm not crossing. I can't jaywalk. It's illegal. Okay? 
if you jaywalk, your conscience will, what? Condemn you. Because you believe it is never, ever right under any circumstances to jaywalk. If you do it, your conscience condemns you. It doesn't affirm you. Okay? If you believe that it's always the right thing to do to help an old lady cross the street, either crosswalk, and you fail to do it, your conscience will condemn you. But if you go over and do it, your conscience will, what? Affirm you, right? That's what we're talking about. You have a particular standard. We all have standards of right and wrong. And when you follow that standard and act in accordance with what is right, your conscience affirms you. And when you act in accordance, not in accordance with what your, that standard is, then your conscience condemns you. Paul talks about this conscience affirming in the Bible. When he was talking about his desire for the salvation of his kinsmen, the Jews, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That was a real feeling. So he's telling you, I have this feeling in my heart about how I feel about the, my Jewish kinsmen. I want them to be saved. I'm not lying. This is really how I feel. Okay? And then in uh, 1 Samuel, it's a good example, 1 Samuel 24.5, this is where David is in pers being pursued by Saul. And... Um, Let's see, where shall I start here? Let's see, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David. And his men came uh, in, and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay? Go to the bathroom. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord has said to you. Behold, he's in here. I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Like, take care of business. Then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. David had a standard, and that standard said, You shall never put your hand on the Lord's anointed. In his case, even, even if the Lord's anointed is acting wickedly, sinfully, pursuing the one true king, and who's abrogated his throne, even then, you shall not, that was David's standard. David violated that standard, and what happened? His conscience smote him. Um, our oldest, we love him. He's, he's just the sweetest. Um, most of the time, well, he, uh, and uh, he's experiencing this now. He's experiencing this immediate pain of conscience. Uh, the other day, he got his new video game, his new Nintendo Switch. He'd gotten a new game, and he wanted to try it out. But we had said not until later that week or something like that. 
And then he took it in the bathroom and he started playing it. And he said the moment he started playing it, he realized he shouldn't start playing it. And so we worked through it. It was, it was good to work through that. Because what? His conscience smote him, right? When we do something that we know is we've, a standard in our mind we know is not right, our conscience smites us. But when we do what is right, our conscience affirms us. But the conscience isn't infallible. Listen, it only affirms that we've kept a particular standard or it condemns us when we've broken it. The standard, here's, here's the caveats though. Okay, ready? Here are the caveats. The standard may be wrong. Okay? The standard itself may be wrong. Or our consciences may be uninformed as to what is truly right and truly wrong. Nevertheless, the conscience is a gift of God that is meant to enable us to walk what is good and right. So, the conscience is not infallible. It's just the capacity to, to judge right and wrong, and then to when we act in accordance with it, uh, the conscience affirms or condemns us. Got ten more minutes. Okay. Conversion to Christ cleanses the conscience because all of our violations of God's perfect standards have been dealt with at the cross. This is what Hebrews 9.14 is getting at. The conscience is cleansed by Christ's work. Verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ through who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is the work that Christ has accomplished. It purifies the conscience, cleanses the conscience. We have, we have violated God's law. We have attempted to cover it up with our own self-atoning works. Those would be dead works. The, the blood of Christ, the, the gospel comes along and it cleanses our conscience. All of our sins have been washed away. They've been paid for. We no longer stand before God condemned because of those sins, and therefore the conscience is cleansed. But it doesn't stop there because the ongoing work of the Christian, the ongoing responsibility is to continually cleanse our conscience through regular confession, repentance, and renewal of faith in the gospel. And you see this very thing in 1 John 1.9. I even read it during the sermon last week, I believe. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we are continually to confess our sins to enjoy this cleansing of our conscience. Confessing sins to God, but also as James 5.16, and this might even be harder. Confessing our sins to one another when we've sinned against somebody. You might confess a sin to God and you feel like your conscience still is bothering you because you know you still need to confess it to whoever you sinned against. And your conscience will continue to bother you until you've dealt rightly with that person. And that's actually one of the very topics that we'll address when we go through that biblical counseling uh, series, is this issue of confessing sins not only to God, but if you want to maintain a clear conscience to confessing that sin to the one you've sinned against. Scripture makes the maintenance of a good conscience a matter of, listen, the highest priority in the Christian life. 
It is job number one in the Christian life to maintain a good conscience through regular confession, repentance before God, and then confession to another person if that is appropriate in that given circumstance. Uh, just a few texts. Paul talks about a good conscience so often in his letters to Timothy. We'll just mention these texts and then we'll see what questions you have. 1 Timothy 1.15, or I'm sorry, 1.5. The aim of our charge, the aim of Christian teaching, exhortation, preaching, the aim of discipleship, counseling, is this. Love that comes or issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You can just memorize that verse. What's the aim of Christian teaching? Those three things, including a good conscience. What happens if you don't maintain a good conscience? Verse uh, 18 of the same chapter, This I charge, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. What happens if you don't? By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they learn not to blaspheme. What happens when you don't keep a good conscience? You potentially can make a shipwreck of your faith. It's hard to keep faith in Christ glowing and thriving when your conscience is constantly burdened and condemned. Okay? Uh, and then finally, 3.9. Talking to, about deacons. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Um, and then finally, Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. There really is nothing better than a clear conscience, guys. There's just nothing better. It keeps that conduit of God's uh, spirit and favor and blessing clear and open. Your enjoyment of God is is unhindered and unabated. And so what we'll do now, next, next few weeks, is we'll walk carefully through Romans 14, starting with eating and not eating to the glory of God with a question mark, and then uh, those six essential principles. So, what questions do you have for the next five minutes about what we've talked about? Yes, Chilam. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's another word for it. Conscience issues, gray area issues. Yeah, certain things that are not gray area in the Bible, like healing, right? First Corinthians 8 is clear it's a non-issue issue, right? So, versus something like wearing a mask in church, which is not mentioned in the Bible at all. Right. So, do you see a difference in uh, dealing with these two, like someone who doesn't want to eat? But the Bible is clear that everything is clean for eat, to eat. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think
the issue, yeah, I'd have to think about that because even with regard, as we'll see in Romans 14, with regard, of, with regard to eating, um, you're talking about eating in general. The issue in Romans 14 is eating particular foods. Paul takes the side of the, theologically takes the side of the stronger person who can eat anything. But he doesn't dissuade the weaker person from doing what they're doing because they have to become convinced in their own mind uh, without being forced into it, forced to violate their conscience. So though it is a knowledge issue, uh, it still, in my judgment, still remains gray because, like for example in 1 Corinthians 8 you mentioned, the issue there is the eating of meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So though it's a knowledge of, uh, thing, it still will take time for that person to be able to eat meat in all circumstances, in all settings. So I think your distinction between, making a distinction between that which is clearly in the Bible, namely eating, and that which is not in the Bible, mask wearing, is a good distinction. And I would have to think more about whether or not to make a difference between gray areas and matters of conscience. I just, I just have to think about it more. But I, I, it's, a good, it's, a good, it's a good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, re, the idea, um, I mean, there, I can't remember what the number was. There's some really high number. It was like multiple thousands. Someone had done a study and said that there are multiple thousands denominations and sects and factions of Christianity. How, you know, this clearly shows that Christianity is not true because of all this disunity. It's, it's a hugely, first of all, it's a hugely overblown claim. Uh, you have a steady cord of agreed upon doctrine and truth and what, what Christianity consists of beginning in the early church till now. Um, you, have, you actually have a lot, so the point is you have a lot of agreement within Christianity. Uh, so you have to be careful of how much you blow up this idea of all this division. You, in terms, when it comes to the essentials, you have a lot of agreement from the early church till now. That's number one. Uh, number two is that given this agreement on the essentials and what we would say leads a person to actually be saved and to have a relationship with God and to be right with God, there are disagreements, and those disagreements don't show that there is uh, disun doesn't show that there is irremediable disunity per se. It shows that Christians care so much about truth that they're willing to actually disagree for a season, a time here on earth 
with other who they will call brothers and sisters in the Lord, but will say, yet we can't do church together because we so strongly believe in truth and believe that, for my, in my part, for my part, that baptism is only for believers and that your particular uh, interpretation is incorrect, that though we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have to fellowship and do, or we, not fellowship, we have to do church in two separate places. Um, and what people typically, unbelievers typically do not appreciate is the nuance that has to come along with those kind, kinds of uh, things, that Christianity actually has a tremendous amount of resources to be able to talk and think like that, that we can say things like, here are the essentials, you can come into a right relationship with God, and yet we can have strong disagreement on these particular issues that don't affect the essentials, but that are actually important enough that we're not gonna, we can't do church together. Uh, that's not irremediable uh, disunity. That is actually, I think, a well-nuanced explanation of how Christianity functions this side of, of the fall, this side of eternity. So uh, it's hard to have those discussions with someone who's, because they're an unbeliever, they're not, their heart is not ready to, to receive uh, a, a number of these things. So I think, but explaining some of those things are helpful. And then what was your, the last part of your question? Was that it, or was it, you had like, okay. So that's just important to remember that that claim is, is hugely overblown. It's, it's coming from people who, who haven't really thought too deeply about these things or uh, heard it in that way, okay? There is a strong chord of truth that begins in the early church uh, till now that, the, that Christians agree on, yeah. Um, so uh, my question question of uh, like, uh, uh, you have like a lack of knowledge, for example, yeah. on some of these things, but you have a great area. Uh, what would you say about like uh, maybe a believer, but then they have lack of knowledge in certain, you know, certain uh, aspects that we would call essential? Yeah. They have a lack of knowledge of it, or they they might have a like wrong interpretation because they have a lack of knowledge about hermeneutics or, or you know something like that. Like uh, as you walk in your uh, Christian faith, yeah. Growing in maturity, uh, in Hebrews five it says that you should be growing in yeah. your ability to discern. That's basically like going from uh, baby food yeah. to you know to solid food. Um, what's the difference between that kind of uh, lack of uh, uh, knowledge versus like oh the lack of knowledge when it comes to oh all food are clean to eat? What what you have to keep an eye on is so going back to here. Um, these are issues of doctrine, these are issues of truth, these are issues that relate back to God himself, right? So if a person is a new believer, they're not going to have all this knowledge about the nuances of the Trinity and these kinds of things, um, but what you want to, to be aware of and is, is whether or not they're, um, they're starting to go in directions that are clearly heretical, right? So. It's not as though they have all this knowledge initially when they are converted. It's how are they going to respond to it as it is being presented uh, in Christian teaching and so on. So you can, we can, we can, historically, we can clearly mark out when someone is drifting into her her heresy. Okay? They start to suggest things like, well, the Spirit's not really deity, I don't think. He's not really a person. You know, I've been doing some studying, and you'd be like, no, brother. Like, that's... That's, that's, not, that's not debatable, you know what I mean? Um, you're drifting into what the church is, is clearly defined as, as heretical. 
Um, and so that's what you're that's what you're looking for. These these issues related to the very uh, nature of these essential issues. Um, what you're looking for is in, in the believers that they have a sensitivity to the Word of God, to being taught by the Word of God, to, to listening to, um, uh, to these things in their historical context, being able to mark out heretical issues. The difference between that and, say, knowledge about eating is, well, I guess I would say there isn't, it all relates back to knowledge of God. So there, in that sense, there isn't a huge amount of difference. Even Paul himself says that if you uh, say that, for example, marriage is, it's more spiritual to not be married, and it's more spiritual to reject certain foods, you might be thinking, oh, that's just a, a knowledge issue on a different tier than like the Trinity. Paul would say, no, that's actually doctrines of demons. Because it does all ultimately relate back to uh, the knowledge of God, right? So, um, in as much as someone's eating or not eating is causing them to fall into heretical notions about the nature of God, then you do have an issue. But if it merely remains on the level of eating or not eating, then it's not, it, it's not an issue. So, uh, but I think you can't, it's hard to make a hard and fast distinction because it does really come back to, to knowledge. It really does. I mean, that's what Paul's concern is in Romans uh, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. All right, well, hopefully these things will become more and more clear in your own hearts and mind and consciences as we go along. Uh, it is 10.05. Let me close you in prayer, and you guys are free to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this instruction from your word. Help us to rightly understand and divide it that we might walk in unity among each other in clarity in our own hearts and minds that we would be able to behold the, the, the truths and the essential truths that we must uh, cling fast to and at the same time recognizing that there will be differences among us when it comes to gray areas. Help us to discern among these as believers being patient with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.